This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today, I have with me Irene Koshansky. Irene is with the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. We have a very fascinating discussion about the mission of the fund, what its approach, and how it uses business to fight the international scourge of human trafficking and modern slavery. It's an important podcast, and I know you will find it very instructive for you as a compliance professional. Are you interested in learning about how design thinking can improve your compliance program? Then check out my latest podcast, Design Thinking and Compliance, where with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we explore this question. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Irene Koshansky. Irene is with the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, and we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion about not only that, uh, where she works, and the passion she brings to that job, but really how this fits into a much broader um, series of topics, uh, even as broad as compliance and ESG. So, Irene, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here with you, and hi to all your listeners. So, Irene, could you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Certainly. So not unlike um, most compliance professionals, I didn't just wake up one morning and realize I wanted to be a compliance officer. Uh, I actually studied history and international relations and fully expected that I would seek a career in law next. Um, But instead, I traveled the globe. I hit all seven continents as a young adult. Um, And my, my passion for the planet and all the people living in it Uh, really drew me to the international development and humanitarian assistance sectors. Um, I've spent more than 15 years now, or yeah, more than 15 years, it's incredible, working in the international development sector, mostly with nonprofit organizations. And currently, as you mentioned, I'm the Associate Director for Compliance and Operational Integrity with an organization called the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. Did you travel to Antarctica in your travels? I did, yes. Um, I was fortunate when I uh, was in uh, Argentina, I went to a, the tip called Tierra del Fuego, and from there, a traveler can take a ferry to the Argentinian partition of Antarctica. So that was pretty cool, my seventh continent, albeit just a toe on there. No, no, that fully counts. Uh, so as a lawyer, I've done contracts on six of the seven continents, and my goal is to sometime, at some point, go down and, and do a contract in Antarctica so that I can say I've done legal work and contracts on all seven continents. So uh, tell us about your current position at the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery and a little bit about uh, the fund itself. Sure. Well, let me start with the fund. Um, The Global Fund to End Modern Slavery is just that. We are primarily a global fund. Our mission is to bring together many donors and coordinate globally to escalate and scale efforts to end modern slavery. I'm sure listeners want to know why. 
Why do we do this? We do it because anti-slavery efforts are drastically underfunded. Estimates show that the world spends peanuts combating modern slavery every year, while criminal outfits are earning about $150 billion in illicit profits every year. And, and this isn't a fair fight. So part of our mission is to change this by bringing more funding in. Um, beyond mobilizing resources, we work with partners, governments, civil society, survivors, and at-risk communities to develop programs that can affect uh, real change. Um, and what I thought would be useful for listeners is for me to maybe describe the international problem of modern slavery and what that looks and feels like from our vantage point. Um, and, and some folks might know, but there are over 40 million people living in modern slavery deprived of fundamental rights, dignities, and freedoms. Tom, more than 70% are women and girls, and one in four is a child. Despite being illegal everywhere, modern slavery exists almost everywhere, taking various forms of exploitation and abuse like human trafficking, forced labor, debt bondage, forced marriage, and commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, most of us know what happens on construction sites, in factories, on farms and fishing boats, in private households, even in nail salons, um, and tens of billions of dollars worth of everyday goods that make up our diets and our daily routines, from coffee and chocolate to cell phones, and the clothes we wear are tainted by forced labor. Why is that? Modern slavery persists because millions of people, due to poverty, conflict, or inequality, lack viable alternatives. It persists because it is profitable. Traffickers and organized crime, as I mentioned, they're making an estimated $150 billion per year in profits. And it persists, Tom, um, because existing laws and legal frameworks are not strong enough to stop it. Um, we believe, GFAMS and myself included, that global supply chains play a special role in driving forced labor. And so it, establishing and maintaining supply chain integrity is really critical to ending forced labor. We see supply chains as the connective tissue between the demand for cheap goods in wealthy countries and the highly vulnerable worker populations that meet that demand in lower income countries. Um, now, I know your, your question to me was twofold. You asked me to talk about the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. Uh, I've just done that. But I also hold several hats at the organization I currently work for. Um, so I'll speak to that next, if, if that works. It does. It does. All right. Um, so as I mentioned, in, in, when you introduced me, I've spent you know, a bulk of my career supporting nonprofit organizations in the international development and humanitarian space. And the last half of my career has been um, supporting smaller nonprofit orgs who don't have the resources for robust compliance shops, yet they have donors who expect robust compliance programs. Uh, as a result, I had to become familiar with a range of compliance topics, everything from anti-money laundering, anti-corruption, conflicts of interest, third-party vetting, uh, data integrity, um, and of course, business ethics and behavioral change. Uh, throughout that decade, I've grown pretty accustomed to being a team of one, holding positions that allow for very holistic vantage points at the nonprofits that I serve. 
Um, and in order to do that successfully, I spent a lot of time learning from my peers and following trends and developments in the ethics and compliance space to adopt best practices in the nonprofit world. And I think that's something that um, we don't talk about enough, how compliance professionals work in the nonprofit space. So I run and I established and I run the Funds Integrity and Compliance Program. It is largely designed after the guidelines established by the Department of Justice. So my role oversees staff education, training and engagement, uh, the establishment and maintenance of policies and procedures, leadership on risk assessments and corporate insurance. Um, I also bear responsibility for reporting, investigations and remediation. Um, I manage our third party relationships, and that includes all uh, procurement, grant making and contracts admin from the support side. So I support our teams who are working on those. Um, I'm also part to party to audits and compliance reviews, and I stir, serve as a staff resource on legal and regulatory matters. Um, so I know that's a mouthful. It's a lot for one person to do. Uh, but when the scale is a little bit smaller in terms of the number of personnel a company has, uh, it can be managed, albeit sometimes I feel like I'm flying the plane and building it at the same time. So that can be a challenge. So you mentioned uh, one of the uh, missions of the fund is to help with funding, but that's only one of the missions. And I know you all work with private corporations to help fight this international scourge. Why is the private sector so critical to this fight? And how does the fund work or your organization work with the private sector to help all of us uh, in this uh, uh, fight? Good question. Uh, I don't think anyone would disagree that the majority of forced labor today exists in the private economy. Global supply chains, they play a major role in the perpetuation of forced labor. And there's, I think, particular interest in establishing supply chains that are free of forced labor as part of larger efforts to end forced labor entirely. And doing so, uh, I think it offers benefits related to global issues such as climate change, gender equality, and migration. However, establishing supply chains free of forced labor faces an obstacle. Many of the key partners in global supply chains are in lower income economies that lack the resources to keep pace with rising standards, much less to comply with the requirements of those standards. Um, domestic work accounts for the largest percentage of forced labor exploitation cases, but it also exists in, uh, in agriculture, construction, manufacturing, food service, hospitality, so much of the food we eat and the clothes we wear are produced by forced labor. So if we are to make real progress in ending modern slavery, we need to engage and partner with the private sector. Now, you had asked how uh, the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery works in this space. So one of the primary ways GFEMS works with the private sector is to develop tools and help companies monitor for forced labor in their supply chains. We all feel the push for socially responsible goods, but detecting forced labor remains a challenge as companies contract with first-tier suppliers, but they lose visibility further downstream. Um, and when labor is unseen, there is little oversight or accountability. One tool that GFEMS recently developed is a machine learning tool 
that can generate risk profiles for companies from publicly available data. Uh, predicting forced labor with about 84% accuracy, this tool works as a first pass uh, screening for companies to understand and take action against forced labor risk in their supply chains. Um, GFEMS, yeah, something else to add there, GFEMS also works with private sector uh, to build safer migration and employment channels. Private recruitment companies, often they charge excessive fees, both for job training and then for placement services. Workers take on debt to pay these fees, which then leaves them extremely vulnerable to exploitation. And debt bondage is actually one of the most prevalent forms of forced labor or modern slavery. Um, in the Philippines, GFEMS worked with our partners to place thousands of Filipina domestic workers safely in jobs in Hong Kong, ensuring that no fees were paid. The model we implemented there was replicated by another recruitment agency in Malaysia. And in India, we supported the establishment of the first agency for ethical recruitment. And what these interventions, Tom, are showing us is that one, ethical business models can be profitable. And two, these partnerships with the private sector are critical to reducing forced labor and exploitation. We'll be right back with more from Irene Kashansky after this quick message. Irene, you've used a term a couple of times, and I want to make sure our listeners understand what that term is. It's clear to you what it is, GFEMS. Ah, yes, thank you. GFEMS is the acronym for the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, the organization we're talking about today. When I first got into compliance, I decided that I wanted to work uh, in corporations to build compliance programs because I saw the business solution that private companies bring to compliance as a way to lead that effort. And it really strikes me that that's what you guys are doing. Certainly you have uh, an awareness and a fundraising aspect, but these programs with in partnership with private corporations or you educating private corporations seems to me to be one of the key ways to drive uh, not only the message of GFIMS forward, but also to help in this fight. Uh, but I was wondering if, if a listener wanted more information on GFIMS or actually wanted to get involved, uh, either from the personal or corporate level, how could they do that? Yeah, great question. Um, as mentioned, we are a global fund and a nonprofit organization, so we always welcome donations. But partnership is really the foundation of all our work. Um, we partner with individuals, companies, organizations across the world to develop and implement programs to end modern slavery. So if listeners have an idea or are interested in partnership, please reach out. Um, you can find our contact information on our website, www.gfems.org. And definitely spread the word, spread the word about the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery and our mission, um, bring awareness to the problem, and help compel action to end it. Uh, you said something a little bit earlier that one of the reasons or underlying uh, conditions leading to forced labor and uh, human trafficking and slavery, which I've not heard before, but it makes perfect sense to me, and that was migration. And I was going to ask you, why is this problem of global slavery 
uh, or human trafficking even more important. But now I wanted to change that a little bit to ask you to really explain how migration plays into that. And that, for me, brings up issues of climate change or regime change or a mm-hmm. wide variety of other reasons that would force or or uh, drive someone to migrate. But how does the problem of global migration tie into this practice of uh, modern slavery as well? That's a good question. Now, uh, I'll tell you, Tom, that there are experts at the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery that can give you a really robust answer. Uh, But I think at, at face value, migration is risky because it leads to vulnerabilities. When people leave where they are, uh, whether they do so legally or illegally, whether they're doing so uh, for jobs or for uh, to to um, remove themselves from persecution or, or other forms of exploitation, it leads to those same vulnerabilities that are drivers for uh, modern slavery. And so I think migration is um, really important to look at because it, because it's being I think a lot of the patterns we see is being driven by climate change, which you just mentioned. It's creating this new urgency, rising temperatures, flooding, food insecurity. Um, People are leaving where they currently are, going to other places. And oftentimes it might be illegally or under circumstances that are unknown that could lead to debt bondage, that could lead to other forms of modern slavery. And you mentioned something else. I think rising authoritarianism and corruption are also increasing... um, Repression and, and they're fueling the rise of state-imposed forced labor, which we've seen come to the forefront in the media. Um, and so without significant investment now, I think the, the problem will only worsen and the number of people, men, women, children, trapped in modern slavery will continue to rise. Irene, you uh, mentioned that you've been in the nonprofit space, I think you said as long as 15 years. And that, uh, so I wanted to ask, maybe with uh, your uh the position you have where you've worn so many hats, it's given you a much more holistic view and having been in this space for quite some time, where do you see the fight against modern global slavery down the road in 2025 or perhaps even beyond? Yeah, that is a loaded question. Um, I'll do my best to give it justice. Uh, Certainly with the pandemic, we've seen numbers rise and there's no doubt that COVID has had um, devastating effect on on populations that are already vulnerable and on our efforts to combat modern slavery. But, Tom, we are hopeful for the future. Uh, Right now, we see the rising concern about the integrity of supply chains and the growing movement for socially responsible goods as a really big, important step. We've seen new laws in key markets um, and nations taking steps to ban products made with forced labor from entering their ports. Also, great step. Uh, We see greater attention being paid to issues that intersect with and directly affect modern slavery, just as you mentioned, issues like gender, migration, and climate change. Um, And along with our partners on the ground, GFAMS continues to pressure world leaders to take action to enforce labor. Um, And if these trends continue, and our organization is certainly working to make sure that they do, uh, we see a path towards real progress in 2025 and beyond. So you touched on a couple of times throughout this presentation, ESG, and I see what you guys are doing uh, directly in, yes, 
maybe the E and G part of ESG as well. But where do you all see the fight against uh, modern global slavery in the ESG conversation? Yeah, well, promoting human rights and preventing human trafficking, I think, is critical to any ESG program. Um, there, you talk about this often on your podcast with other guests, but there's enormous growing demand for corporate and investor accountability on a wide range of issues um, that's often captured in that environmental, social governance criteria. Um, and the use of these standards requiring ethical and sustainable business and investment practices has really risen dramatically in the last decade. I think I, I read a statistic in 2011, it was like 20% of S&P companies um, reported on ESG criteria. And this year in 2021, something like 90% are reporting on it. So the S criteria, social, are regarded uh, still as the weakest of the three and reporting standards and verifiable data for forced labor and human trafficking require improvement. Um, there's a number of such efforts underway. So that's the good news, Tom. People are looking into this, but full adoption and the data and the compliance tools to support it are still pretty far off from our vantage point. Um, and meanwhile, forced labor is increasingly a compliance risk for investors. Uh, that you know, It's a reputational risk, as well as the potential disruptions from the growing import bans and the due diligence laws that we all need to comply with. Unfortunately, this is an audio-only podcast, for our, uh, but our listeners obviously know that. Um, and the unfortunate part is you don't get to see Irene. And she is incredibly passionate about this. And I wish you could see her on the visual that I get to see because I'm just so enthralled with your passion around this, Irene. Uh, and I see why, why you do what you do and why you do it so well. Um, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. But before we go, uh, I have a bonus question for you. I understand that you attended the University of Cape Town and you're the first person who attended the University of Cape Town that I've had the opportunity to uh, interview. So I wanted to ask you, uh, as an American attending that for uh, some period of time, what was that like for you? Oh, man, good memories, Tom. Um, it was actually one of the highlights of my young adult life, that is for sure. Um, I was based at University of Cape Town, which is in Cape Town, uh, one of the most beautiful coastal cities I've ever been to. Um, so I spent six months a semester there finishing a component of my undergraduate degree in international relations. And when I wasn't studying, um, I was just diving into the local culture. I would take the little buses everywhere. I would walk. Um, it, you know, I would hit up all the beaches. Uh, there is something to be said about Cape Town. And, and while I was there, I was also afforded an amazing opportunity to travel, do some safaris, to some neighboring countries along the coast. So real cool experience. And I would go back in a heartbeat. So unfortunately, now we are at the end of our time. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics you've talked about today, uh, where would be the best place they could go for information, Irene? Yeah, as mentioned, our website is a great first start. Uh, listeners can go to www.gfems.org for the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. There's a ton of information available on our site. There's also a contact us page um, for media inquiries, other inquiries. 
And, you know, Tom, if you want to think about it, we'd love to do a follow-up with you on, and dive into some of these issues with other experts on our team. Well, I certainly uh, would love to continue that dialogue. Irene, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope we will check out the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Wynn Hassan. Wynn takes a look at human trafficking and modern slavery in all its forms, but more importantly, what can you as the compliance professional do to help fight this international scourge? Check out Hidden Traffic, newly premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.